All right, welcome everybody to our latest Between the Races podcast on the MX Vice Network. Thank you everyone for listening and supporting the site. We really appreciate it. We'd first like to thank our sponsors in Fly Racing, Monster Energy, Fox, Parts Europe, Scott, Bell Helmets, Acherbys, AS3 Performance, Kawasaki UK, KTM UK, O'Neill, and of course, even Strokes for all their incredible support. As without them, none of this would be possible. All right, for this episode, we're joined by Brian Jorgensen, former GP star and now trainer, back again for the third podcast, mate. How's life? And thanks for joining us. The fans are really loving these ones. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot for inviting me back. It, uh, it's 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 quite a few times now. So, uh, no, I, I really enjoy it. And uh, I hope the, the, the fans also likes it. You know, I, I try to come with, of course, some of the, the knowledge that, that I have over the the many years of being in the sport as a writer, but also now as a as a coach. But uh, yeah, life is life is good. It's, I'm back here in in Spain. I just uh, came home from uh, south of France, where we have been uh, holding the the Blue Crew, uh, the Yamaha Blue Crew Masterclass, uh, as we spoke a little bit about before. So we had like uh, sixteen riders, and we had to pick out uh, one rider from uh, from each class, sixty five, eighty five, and one two five. And uh, I was in great company with, you know, people from Yamaha Europe, but also with Gorchin Polin and uh, Nancy van der Ven, which was a former world champion in the, in the women. So um, it was good to, to have them on board and, uh, and, and being, a, you know, uh, be, being a good, you know, evaluator of the, of the riders and see what they're capable of and they, and and finally have to choose you know a winner in each class and uh, this year was uh, was really tough because the procedure that we we have is of course they have the the Yamaha Blue Crew uh, race which is the the same as motocross of nation as many people will probably know and then there's going to be one two and three in each class that get picked out for this master class and uh, and then we take a couple of reserves as well that we think that deserves the the opportunity and uh, then we basically go and do like a training school for them on the first day. And the second day, we uh, we let them do uh, a bit of racing together to to see how they pass, how do they approach when there becomes a little bit of pressure from the rear. Because also in on it, especially for the sixty five, the track was very much uh, watered, like it it should be in the morning. But it was a bit of a challenge for those small riders. Uh, so you know maybe there were some people that fall behind that didn't show the full potential so here we we had a couple of days with them uh talking with them personally you know each and everyone and uh, and them actually you know get to teach them and and see how well do they adapt to uh, to things that i say or go in uh, pull in <clears throat> or even uh nancy van der ven you know how do they approach the the thing how is the attitude because when we do collect the rider, it's only it's not only about just speed, just pure speed, or, or how the race went in the weekend, uh, you know, at Erne, but also you know the 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 social skills, the um, the attitude that they have, and and of course like uh, everything adds up, and and that's how we we choose the the winner. So it was great. It was a, a, a perfect weather. Uh, the the Bouvesong, uh track uh, man have done an incredible job. It's it's actually been raining for a couple of days, so the people went out on Monday as we starting the training on Tuesday. Said, ah, oh, it's a little bit muddy, but it was twenty six degrees on Tuesday and and Wednesday, so uh, the track was just unbelievable. <laughs> Maybe there's not many times that you see like this. So busy, but uh, some some great days and see many happy people. So uh, 
that that makes me happy as well. Yeah, obviously, the talent level is so high, mate, and that Blue Crew Cup is obviously really hard to choose. The riders and obviously just maybe tell us a little bit about the support packages they get, the ones that get selected, because it's a pretty cool thing to work towards and they definitely get rewarded for, you know, showcasing their skills, don't they? Yeah, definitely. You know, they it's a it's a honestly, you know, being involved with Yamaha and and seeing what they're actually giving back to the kids, being a kid myself uh, many years ago with maybe not the um, a lot of um finances, you know, and we we've been through that story and and how I had to go out and get sponsors to make it because of the that they didn't have a, a family with with a lot of money and and this is a great opportunity for for the young riders to um, to to have some support. So the the people that you know with the the person that we select for the sixty five and eighty five, they get some support from the from the local dealer where they can borrow a couple of bikes and they get some spare part budget. But the one two five rider that wins, he wins a year for free with JK Racing, and then uh, me as a coach, um, starting you know in Red Sand and making the preparation during the winter. I'm going to go to the races and uh, I'm going to visit, you know, them wherever they are in, in Europe and um, and train with them also during the season. So, and then at the races, you know, obviously there's, there's you know, always said that there's not a lot you can teach during the weekend because there's already enough thing going on for, for a rider. But just being there and being, you know, uh, four eyes instead of two eyes, uh, of course, can can help with the experience that I have. You know, looking at a track. So, uh, yeah, it's a it's a great program, and um, and we have to to make a selection. And uh, it was a bit more difficult this year, I would say, than than the other years. But uh, we we are three uh, four people there to 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 judge. So it's not you know only me that uh, judging the riders and picking out the riders. So I can leave some of the responsibility over to to their hand as well, and uh, to have you know Nancy and Gochi and Polin, uh, with being the rider that he was in the in the sport as well is uh, is great because you have different things that you're looking looking at. You have different point of views, and uh, it's great to uh, to put that in a in a big basket and and pick out the 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 rider that we believe most on here. And there was also some riders where we think okay. He's going to be really good in the future, but maybe now he's a little bit too young, you know. But uh, it was a, a, a great day, some some great days. Yeah, I'm sure so, uh, really was... enjoyed it as well, having three legends of the sport in a lot of ways. You know, it's not something they get to do every day as well, so they would have definitely taken a lot from it, mate, even if they don't get selected. I'm sure they've got a lot to work on in the future in their own careers. So I guess it would be pretty cool yeah. for you to follow their progress, having seen them, you know, at this age. And then obviously as they progress into the professional senior ranks, it's kind of cool, mate, because, you know, you can see, you know, how some riders adapt, some how riders challenge it. And something we were talking about was definitely the mentality a lot on these podcasts and how to deal mm. with it, I guess, earn respect in some ways. So, you know, rising to challenges. And one thing we definitely wanted to touch on was the mind games that you sort of faced, you know, racing against the guys like Everett, Smets, Marnik, you know, so many guys in there that, you know, they've got their superiority and, they want to hold their supremacy, mate. They don't kind of want to let anyone in or, you know, someone that's sort of a bit of an outsider or an underdog. They want to sort of keep the chosen few, mate. So how was that for you, you know, trying to break in and sort of unsettle them and, you know, and also the mind games they played with you and how you adapted to it? Because obviously you have your own way of dealing with it and then you sort of end up fighting fire with fire a bit to sort of flex it on them too to show that you mean business. So that's a pretty cool dynamic that we definitely wanted to speak about on this podcast. 
Yeah, well, you know, we 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 talked about it after the the last podcast and uh, last time, and uh, you know, I said, you know, coming from from the one two five uh, going into the two fifty, but then moving from the one two five up to the five hundred class, where Monique Bearwood, um Joel Smith, and and Stefan Evers was probably the you know the dominant uh, little group there with with just being Belgium. So it was it was almost like you you can say that you feel there was a Belgium championship and nobody should come into this little circle and destroy the the image and the results and and the battle that they already had between each other you know being from 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 Belgium so uh, um, there there was definitely there was definitely some time there for uh, for me that I had to uh, really man up and um, and you know show them that I was. You know, not just uh, someone just just to be there because I want to be a number in the sport, but actually want to be there because I wanted to be a world champion. And uh, I remember one of my first episodes uh, when moving into the five hundred class with the um, the old you can always say the old brand of Husqvarna, which was manufactured by Cativa, which was his Italian brand before KTM bought Husqvarna. And <clears throat> I will I will be more than than honest to say that the bike was not incredible it was a 450 with with not so many horsepower with a lot of kilos but uh you know i i adapted to that riding style uh, after you know riding the 125 for a couple of years after my first factory 250 ride in 99 and um, it actually suited me quite well because i didn't have incredible a lot of power um the the, the persisting of the bike actually was okay for me um, there, there was of course a, a couple of challenges with with suspension and and bits and pieces all the time, and uh, but but coming into the first race at Falkenswart for the for the World Championship 500, I remember going on the track and you know just learning the track and I was you know of course a little bit nervous because actually that year I signed with Vatamati in 2002 and that didn't go on for 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 many months and then we actually went to Husqvarna. Uh, you know, being the teammate from a guy called Billy, uh, Johnny Linde, uh, a Swedish guy, and uh, Alexander Pusa, which was already uh, a, a well-established rider and uh, a couple of times world champion and a bit of a, a, a funny character as well. So it was great to be the, the teammate of him and we, we could train together. But coming into Falkenswart, <clears throat> I remember getting on the track and I think I only done like half a lap. And you you're always a bit nervous when you you know move up to a new class and you have to kind of find out who is you know who are the riders here you know of of course like Stefan Evert and Joel Smith is someone that you you kind of had respect for and and looked up to for for many years being you know the little class rider in the one two five and and now you are here with them you know so now you have to find that balance between you know I want to show them that who I am and and why I'm here you know. Uh, and um, it didn't, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't go that well on the first one because I remember like I only done like half a lap, and then this guy starts screaming at me from behind. This was just a free practice, and uh, I believe at that time without knowing it completely, but I think we had two times forty minutes and then the forty-five minutes qualifying. So there was there was enough time to actually learn the track. Um, but uh, but he came up and he was screaming after me and I was like, okay, who is this guy? And I looked back and it was Morning Bavots. And I was like, fuck, okay. You know, I have two choices now. Either I just like pull to the side and like, oh, here you go, big champ, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, I kind of just 
don't give a shit and then you know just show him that you know if you are that good you can just you can just pass me so we did maybe a couple of laps and he was getting more and more frustrated behind me and he was revving the bike putting the clots in and then he was screaming one more time and i thought fuck it this is it you know so i pulled to the side before uh, after the finish line and then um behind the start is like a, a 180 degree corner so i thought okay i'm letting to the side let you know let him know that i'm just gonna let him pass but then i'm gonna show that you know i'm not here just for fun so i let him pass actually and then when he turned left down in the next corner i just ran him completely and i hit him so hard and he just looked at me like who the fuck are you you know what <laughs> in the hell are you thinking of i'm monic bavots and you know we we didn't speak the words, but and, and I was like, I don't give a shit who you are, you know. That's what how I was thinking, my mentality, you know. And uh, and we kind of had a little bit of a scrap on that that lap, and then he went, and uh, and that was it. And then he waited for me when I come in after the after the practice, and he was like, "Fuck, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And why don't you just, you know, why don't you just let me pass?" So I said, "Well, give me a good reason why I should let you pass." If you're that fucking good, which you actually, you know, kind of announcing that you are, you should be able easily passing me because I'm nobody, you know. But I believe that I did pay the same price for the license that you did and the insurance and everything else. So I believe that I have the same right to actually ride this track however I want. And if you are a lot better than me, which you obviously think you are, you can just pass me in any corner with no problem because you're that fucking good. And then the uh, he kind of shut up and then he like, mm -mm, and then he went off. And then, you know, slowly that season, I, uh, I, I got some pretty good results on that bike. And uh, I remember, I don't know if it was uh, fourth round or something like that. Uh, he came over to me and he said, you know what? I'm, I'm actually sorry that I behaved the way that I did because it was not, it was not like I don't respect you. It was just, we had a lot of pressure. And, and obviously there's always a two sides to a story of, of a person that reacts like that, you know, there could have been something else going on, you know, but, but uh, anyway, you know, I, I appreciate it. He came over to me and, and said, sorry, because, you know, and I'm glad that I reacted the way that I did, because I think, you know, I have as much right to, to do my best and he doesn't know, where I come from or how I came into motocross and we talked about that story before and that was also not so easy so it's not like everything has been given to me I had to fight for everything so that's why I you know I didn't take any bullshit for anything because I know how much you know I might look uh, or may look like a, a, a little pretty boy that was just there for for the ride but I was actually there for for, for trying to win a world championship and that's that was my desire in life and I came you know, so fucking far to get there. So I just wanted, you know, I just wanted to have uh, respect for for people. So uh, so that's that's how it started. And you know, the same with with, with Smets. We we talked about further on moving up to the to the MXTP class, which was in two thousand three when they put the the classes together. I had the same kind of you know reaction a little bit for Joel Smith because obviously in the five hundred class. Uh, I finished eight in the world championship and Stefan Everts won the world championship the first time on, on Yamaha after he's come back with his knee from, uh, from, from 2001. Yeah. That was his second world championship that time, actually, I think. 
but um, then moving up to the MXGP class, which was again a, another step for me, you know, going in with with you know riders like Mikel Pichon, who's already been two times world champion on Suzuki. Um, you know, there there was another approach again, and, and another way that you had to you know get the respect for for the riders. And uh, and I remember Joe Smith. Then we became more, you know, I became a lot more competitive because I moved to Honda Martin, and I you know. I really find out what a 450 could really do on a on a motocross track, you know, with a, with a great power, uh, amazing frame, and the way that the that the bike worked. But also working with Honda Martin for me was also a very good because it was it was a, a professional team that was supported by HRC with small parts, but it was still like a really family kind of warm Italian way of of running the team, you know. So, uh, and um, my mechanic at that time was uh, a guy called Henrico and, um, and it was a great mechanic. And uh, we had, you know, we had our own little team in a team, you can say, and, um, and, you know, start riding with, with Stefan then, and Joe Schmidt. Um, obviously, you know, me and Stefan trained together in 2000 down in Red Sand and I was on a one, two, five. We rented a house together. We lived together. When he was with Factory Husky LNM Husky uh, at that time, and uh, you know we were really friends and we went training and you know but but now we we looked at each other a little bit different you know because now it became competitors even if he was you know many times world champion and I was not a world champion but he already knew that I had the the talent and the skills to do it so now it was for me just to putting the packets together and and trying to to actually live it out so you know. After the first couple of rounds of the World Championship, um, I knew that I I had you know I kind of find out that I could actually I could actually do this I could run you know you know top five consistently and if I could run top five I could also you know start dreaming about top three and and maybe even you know getting getting some podiums on a, on a consistency so in Teutzenthal two thousand three actually I was. I took a I took a good start and uh, that was I believe that was the fourth round, but didn't quite believe enough in myself. So I stayed in the you know top three in a, in a long time. Smith came back from fourth, and we were going for for third place. And uh, I hold him back for many laps. I didn't even realize it was him because I I just I just always look forward. And uh, uh, he passed me eventually. You know the last whatever ten minutes of the race or whatever it was. But um, when I watched the interview back on Eurosport, um, some uh, a week later, because there was a guy actually that came to the World Championship that always gave me a copy of of the VHS that I could watch the race at at home, you know, because we were not as as strong as social media at that time that we are we are today. Uh, and then I rewinded the, the the race, and then I watched this interview, and this interview, Joel Smith said. Um, like a little bit of a, how can you say, like there was a, a, a lot of rivalry be- between him and Stefan Everts, uh, Joel Smith and Stefan Everts. So when, when Stefan won and Joel didn't win, I would not say that Joel made excuses, you know, at all, but uh, he was maybe a little bit irritated that I hold him back. You know, that's what he was, he was uh, conferring to, that I was holding him back. But he didn't know my name or didn't know my number. 
you know, motocross race number. So he was like, yeah, this guy was just holding me back and I could have come up and passed Stefan, but because this guy was all over the place, uh, I, I don't know his number, number name, but, uh, you know, he was just uh, pissed, kind of like pissing me off, you know? And I was like, okay, that was, that was not very nice to, <laughs> to hear. So, you know, down on my, uh, I had like a cellar in, in Italy where I lived and I had like a, a Krapovic poster, which I got from a Krapovic because we were doing, um, we started working with a Krapovic in, in 2003 with Honda Martin and uh, there was George Smith on it. So I wrote on the, on the poster, I said, fuck you. I'm going to beat you one day. So every time that I did my cycling, I was looking at this poster and it just really winded me up because all I wanted was actually just, just respect, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not here to just fool around. I'm here to fucking race. And again, if I hold you up or do things, maybe I'm doing the right thing and you're doing the wrong thing, because if you're that fucking good, you should just be easily passing me, you know, but I guess it's also his frustration, you know, when, when you get to, he says at that time, and there's young people coming up. Of course, it's it's irritating when someone just comes into the who is this guy, you know. So, uh, so, so there was definitely one when we're talking about you know earning your respect, um, and and then we actually came to to Bulgaria, and um, I think I was maybe second or third in qualifying, and I really loved that track, Sarajevo. And uh, there was a lot of up and down hills. And I already had a good start the previous year on a bike that didn't have a lot of power. And because there were so many up and down hills, I, of course, lost out of, of speed, you know. But now I was on a good bike and I had, you know, incredible uh, feeling with the bike. And I felt I was a lot stronger mentally and also physically for, for, for this year coming. Um, so um, I was actually in the lead and... Uh, and it was leading for about 15, 20 minutes, you know, not really knowing that even if it was really hot, how my body would probably react to it. So after 20 minutes, I completely felt like, you know, maybe had like a six, seven, eight, you know, second lead. And I was like, why is people not, <laughs> you know, why are they not going faster? Yeah, I was just, you know, I was just nailing every lap and keeping my lap times. And we came into about 20, 22 minutes of the race. I was like, there was someone hit me with a, with a big pen, you know, I just, completely run out of hydration and uh, then Stefan came by me and then I came to this situation you know in, in my racing career where I thought okay now I need to man up because I was already start fading a little bit on, on lap times and Joe Smith came up behind me and I was like fuck now it's the time to actually show him <clears throat> you know he my name but also show the number so he remember it you know and that was 30 I rode with number 30 that year in the, in my first year in the MXTP class. Like MX1, it was called that time. So uh, so I kind of, uh, I didn't let him by because I was finished when we came into 27 or 28 minutes of the moto. And uh, he passed me. And then I passed him back on, on the big tabletop uh, before the finish. And um, <laughs> I remember looking at him because it was such a big tabletop. And, you know, I was just actually looking at him. He was looking down on me and, you know, Joe Smith was a fantastic rider, very strong rider in so many ways, but scrubbing, putting the bikes sideways and stuff like that. He was definitely not the, the last revolution for, for this, you know, he was more about the corner speed and strength and, you know, all the other things that also you need. So I could jump really low on that jump. I probably was the, 
you know, let's say the, the, the new generation in that class where, you know, I had a good technique and I could, you know, do scrubbing and, and those things, not Tim Geiser scrubbing when he came out or Bubba Stewart, but in my own little way, you know. So, um, so I passed him on that jump and then I kind of, it was a left-hand corner uh, before the mechanic area and it was a very high-speed uh, jump, but also high-speed uh, breaking into the corner. And you can go inside and you can go high in the berm. So uh, when when I kind of like, I was on the inside there and I passed him on the jump. So we were like going side by side down to that left-hand corner. And I was just looking at him thinking, is he going to duck underneath me or what's going to happen here? And when he went up in the berm and I was approaching the inside, I was like, this is it. You know, I fucking, I just go straight. You know, I just go straight after his front wheel because now I definitely want to, I definitely want to make sure that he do remember my name and he can also remember my number. So, uh, so that was a, that was a, I'm, I'm, you know, can say like a, a big step in my career that I actually manned up and and you know because I was so many times that year on top five and and now I felt now it was time to get on the podium to make that next step, you know. But uh, to do that, I needed to uh, to show, you know, that I was not I was not taking a. Um, just a, a no for a no that I will fight for for every lap that I have and every opportunity that I get. And I wanted definitely him to know my name and number. So uh, I rammed him really hard. And I remember, you know, it was only three laps to go. And I was like, fuck, he's going to ride through me in the next corner, you know. So I really like tried to to get off and, and get a little bit of a gap. Uh, but he called me up and he finally passed me and there was no hard feelings. And uh, that was my first uh, podium of the MHTP class in 2003, and uh, of course I was I was really happy with that. And uh, and you know after that we uh, we we had you know we were we were not friends, but uh, when I beat him in Germany as well, and uh, going up to the I was second. Stefan Evers uh, won again, and I was second in 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 Germany in, in Geildorf on a very hard pack track. And I remember, you know, standing there waiting for, 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 for the camera to come around and to to make this interview. And I turned around and it was Joel Smith there, and I was like, "Ah, you, you are here as well." And uh, he was like, "Yeah, what do you mean? I'm here?" So I said, "Yeah, but I, I didn't even see you at the race. You know, th- this is the 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 mind game, you know." And I was like, "I didn't even see you." He said, "I was I was just behind you, your rear wheel for for forty minutes or thirty minutes or whatever it was. I think it was thirty five minutes plus two laps." Yeah, I, it's really weird. I didn't even, <laughs> and I felt the pressure, but, you know, three laps to go, he actually made like a crest because he was coming a little bit close and I was pulling away and coming a little bit close. And his last attempt to try to pass me, he, he, he had a, a, where the front wheel slip out, you know, because it was such a difficult track to be aggressive on because it was like riding on, on, on asphalt, you know, it was like, you, you had to be on your limit, but one time you're over the limit, you will go down and, and, you know, hurt yourself. And I just looked at him like, uh, who are you? I mean, I didn't even see you around the, the track, but uh, well done for finishing third, you know. And that was in the memory of, <clears throat> of what he just said, you know, a couple of months before. So I guess, you know, when we talk about mental strength and, and showing your potential and want to have respect, you know, that was my first little manifesting of, of actually writing this piece on the paper on the on the poster you know and i'm gonna beat you one day and 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 keep working towards that and when i manifested that in my head i knew that it would happen someday you know even 
uh, sometimes it's it's you set goals that you think are they realistic, you know. But I do believe that if you have a good mindset and you're willing to work hard and you work towards something, you will get it, uh, you know, sooner or later. It it's just you know it's just important that you don't quit because uh, you you will get what if if you can say that you deserve it, you know. And uh, and that was my that was my little. Uh, you know, respect mind game with 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 Stefan and and also uh, Joel Smith and you know that came into the next year as well when when then I felt I was actually a competitor to to maybe if I had any feeling in my career that I could be a world champion was definitely in two thousand four and uh, and and I started using that at advantage as well I. I, I very much speak about also the, the the people that I teach today. You know, it's 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 all about you know showing that you are you are capable and showing your ego and and don't come into the you know the the waiting zone like with your neck down and you know walk like you have already lost. You know, you have to have your chest high um, and and show a lot of confidence because that's you know you you can you can break a rider if you're coming in with a lot of confidence you know i remember small small mind games you know like if pichon looked at me and i was keep staring at his eyes you know until he would actually back away and and i would use those small things to to uh, uh, and, and maybe it didn't play any game in their in their head you know but that was my own little uh, mind game that i was uh, going through to to become stronger and and then you will go out on a siding lap and then, you know, will always try to be first out. And then the first little jump you will roll on. And if you see that Stefan Evers or Smith was behind, you will just like take the clutch and you would just like go wide open on the throttle. <laughs> so uh, they will get as much dirt in the, in the face as possible, you know? And, and that was my little way of a, in a funny way, maybe to show a little bit that I, you know, fuck, I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to win this shit today. And I believe in myself, you know? Yeah, it can all play a part, can't it? Even like the firm handshakes and yeah, looking in people's eyes, it all sort of, you know, adapts your mindset and their mindset. Because I guess the process you went through and the way you sort of approached it was pretty cool, mate. Because obviously, first you've got to mm. adapt to what's get thrown at you. Then you've obviously got mm. to respond to it. And then I guess mm. through doing what you did, you're placing doubt in their minds as well. Because that's what you want in the long run is to just any little pointer that can knock them down a level or give them something extra to think about. Mm. Pretty cool, mate. So you sort of gain an edge. And you also showed yeah. that weakness really in that situation. So you probably found your place comfortable battling with them while unsettling them. So it's pretty cool, mate. You sort of worked your way around that situation, navigated, and they definitely knew you meant business by the end of it. Yeah, and you know, it, it could be small things like going up to them actually just before you you go out and be like, you know, going out for the hands like, you okay? Are you, are you feeling strong today? You know, like saying something that you didn't really mean, but something that when you say things, it's because, you know, are you feeling strong? Because I'm, I'm fucking, I'm on it today, you know? And uh, yeah, you will use those small things at a, at advantage. And like I said, I, I believe, you know, if you're talking about military or whatever, you know, if you're going into a battle and you're like, <laughs> you know, like that, with your, with your gun and sword, you know, maybe, you know, you're not going to show that you are, you know, you're ready for the fight. You know, you got to come into that uh, pit lane, showing your attitude and showing your confidence because if you're showing your confidence, some people can have a little bit of a doubt in themselves, you know, and, and, and it's all about, and we see that over and over, you know, with, with, with racing and especially when it comes down to, uh, to the end of the, you know, the season, you know, there's, there's probably a lot of 
mind games that normal people don't see, but I see, you know, the way that they approach each other and, and can say small things that, you know, um, that can sit and play in their mind. And I, I heard that recently on, on, a, on another show with, with, uh, with Hayden Deacon, the, the way that they talk about, you know, playing that mind game and, and it can be small things um, that they can just, you know, kind of hints out, just, just uh, do the seeds, you know, just plant, plant the seeds like slowly, you know, and uh, if you can make the other one, just think, you know, even if he doesn't react to it, but he's like, mm, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, he's confident that, you know, that guy. I think this is the, the part of the game and you you need to learn how to play that game because if you want to win is is you know and win a title in you know MXTP or AMA Supercross Outdoor or whatever you you know you got to be up uh, against people that are as competitive as you and um, I believe if you're also really good at at playing your little mind game and showing your confidence that's definitely going to take a, a small part of of the other one yeah, it's pretty interesting. Obviously, you see guys like Hurlings enjoy that kind of thing every now and then. You know, at the start of this season, you'd be like Prado. He can win the qualifying races, but I'll get the job done on Sunday kind of thing when mm-hmm. he's obviously got that record-breaking win. So just a cool thing to follow in the sport. And I guess it takes a kind of a confidence and an inner belief to, you know, project that as well, not just to the media, but to other riders too, because you're sort of putting yourself in a position where you are placing pressure on yourself to perform in a way. I guess because a lot of the time mm. you're doing that before the race, so it's not after the fact when you can say whatever. So I guess it's just a reaffirming, you know, that you're ready for it. And I guess your head up, shoulders back, you know, looking really after it. You're sort of priming yourself for victory, not like defeated before you've even gone into the battle. If you sort of have that slumped overlook, so it's pretty cool. And obviously, you'd probably look at guys like Cooper Webb and that Roxon battle, you know, a couple of years ago in Supercross. You know, they're not necessarily mm. the fastest guys. Sometimes like Cooper Webb, you know, he would, you know, in the training, he just manages weeks, gets through it yeah you know the dynamic he doesn't really mind so much what goes on if someone's faster on the training days it's not so much of an issue because he's ready for battle come the weekend so it's all about your preparation and how you you want to go about it isn't it mate there's so many ways you can choose to do it so other than hurlings and web you can talk about them too so who are some of the other guys that obviously the guys you mentioned smets and everts Mm. those kind of guys who else do you sort of look for in that aspect as well that was pretty good at it maybe that you raced against um um, I, I, I think you know. I think Stefan just he he didn't do it that much because he, you know, obviously he was very confident, uh, especially at the time that I started racing with him because he was already that many times world champion. So, um, you know, when you have that many titles, you maybe you you don't have to show show as much as when you're coming up and and being in a position like me. You know, it was like it's 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 small edges that you get you know to to show your consistency of coming into that you know um uh, pit lane and and being you know up with your chest and and being confident and and trying to you know you can you can see and i remember sitting on the on the on on the bike and you know sometimes watching people if i was a little bit not that confidence that day for whatever reason it can be it can be crash during the week it, it doesn't take on that level it doesn't take a lot of small things you know small small things to go wrong during the week before your confidence is already a little bit knocked knocked down and you know and then other times you come into that that weekend you know having a, a incredible training week and 
and maybe when been out riding with your with your teammate and you feel really great that you did some great passes and you feel like you know you're on top of the world and and of course that that brings a lot of confidence to the weekend and then you can play a little bit those games because you are confidence and to do to do business you know and but it's not very cool if if you show that confidence and you're playing those small, small mind games and then you're 25th you know then it kind of like <laughs> falls falls apart a little bit you've got to have something to have it in you know and you've got to be you know have done the drills and and that's basically what we talked about in earlier shows you know everything you know to gain confidence is basically just to to work hard and to be consistent and and sometimes just do enough because that's what we see also doing you know a 20 20 rounds world championship you know with jeffrey and and the situation that he's been in over the years or even katie wolf which probably for me uh, personally um thinking that he could be a world champion already this year uh, but unfortunately haven't found completely the balance in practice yet you know because should i always look and search for the edge or should i be maybe five percent from the edge and then show the edge in the weekend you know because do you get any points do you get any um, do you get any bonus money with winning in Lommel on, on a Wednesday? No, I don't believe so. But uh, be consistent in the weekend. That's that's what you learn. And and that's being young, you know. And I, 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 I commented on, on a message on, on some post on Instagram, you know, some months ago. And I said, that kid, um, he have all the potential, Katie Wolf, to, to be a world champion. But he have to, uh, he have really to learn quickly now. Because uh, you know, and and just showing off, he he's a rider that rides with a great you know energy. He do things on a motorcycle that not many people. I think we all that have Instagram have watched the the pass from yeah. Latvia when he scrubs passes in Benistan. I cannot remember who he or was it Jago Geertz. And uh, you know the way that he does that, it with so much confidence, so much energy. And then you can really see the benefit of being able to ride the motorcycle in a way that he can do, you know, if that was two jumps before the finish and that was the difference between winning and losing, that is incredible that you can do those things when you really, you know, when you really feel good, you know. So he definitely have all the the the, the capability of, of being a world champion. But unfortunately, as we have seen many times also with Jeffrey Hurlings, and, you know, it's not only about just, just go balls out and, and be really fast all the time. So it's actually also about, you know, just do enough. And that was probably what we spoke about in an earlier podcast as well. That's what Kendrick Caroli, you know, Stefan Everts, it's something that will really Even Prado this year, do. just consistent. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually heard some of the, I, I didn't listen completely finished, but I heard some of the, the podcast on the, on the way home in the, in the plane. And that's where he talks about this. He said, you know, in the end, he was getting quite nervous for practicing mm. because he was like so close to actually having all those points in the lead. And, you know, I, I was just going out and just doing enough, you know, where you think, well, fair enough, you know, that, that was really smart of him because obviously, you know, people like Jeffrey Hurlings, which is also an incredible and, and a very good rider. There's something maybe missing there, you know, like uh, I, I don't know uh, if it's, proving to himself all the time he can he can be the best and he can be the fastest and that's the way he finds his edge or people like Prado is just you know 
I'm good enough. I'm I I know that I'm fuck I'm I'm capable of doing this. So I'm, today I'm just gonna do enough. And you know what? That is the difference between you know winning and losing and be consistent. You know and and being a world champion. And I cannot even say myself that I find out those those things. You know, but uh, I also wanted to always give hundred percent. But I also did learn over the years in in physical workshop and motocross drills during the week that you know the most important is to be consistent and then actually listen to your own body and finding out how much should i actually do this week you know and it takes only experience and it takes feeling with your own body but it also takes a very strong mind to just do enough yeah you know and that's what and be comfortable not doing enough because you don't want to fall behind or feel like the others are working hard and you're not so it's an interesting dynamic isn't it yeah and that's the you know some of the things that you know i used to get pissed off you know you're working you know, you're working week in, week out, and then you hear that Stefan Evers has just been jet skiing all week, you know, and you think, fuck, hell, I'm going to beat it this week, and then they go out, and then he's beating you, you know, easily, and you think, I'm I'm doing all this work, you know, but but that's, again, that's something I learned later on in, in life, and mostly when I retired, that, you know, it's not only about working hard, it's also about being smart, and, and sometimes doing the season actually doing a little bit less yeah, you know that what you maybe should do but it's better to be fresh and to be your mindset and your head and your body being fresh because that's where you become a lot more creative on the track and uh, that's why i think you know for me 2003 worked out so good to me because there was like mx uh, mx motor gp in one weekend and there was always a weekend off so i could really schedule that you know, when I was finished with the race, then I will train a lot doing that, you know, week over the weekend. And when that weekend was, that week was leading up to the next race, I would slowly go down again in, in drills and then being fully recuperated for the, for the race. But uh, when it was two races together, I find it more difficult to actually knowing how much I should train and how much I should do. And then I probably overdid that sometimes, you know, and that, brought me in the situation that I was in, you know, not from the beginning of the season because that was totally not my fault when the bike stopped uh, in there and the the bike failure. But the rest I can, you know, I could blame on myself because then I was already panicking that, you know, now I lost this training and then you go into the first and then you realize there's something wrong with your hand and you have to have operation and then you come back winning in Teutzenthal thinking, fuck, you, you know, instead of like embracing that moment thinking, hope. Wait on a minute. I've not done anything for three weeks. You know, only like a little bit of cycling. I've not ridden the motorbike for three weeks. And then you come out and win both races. Well, I cannot say fairly easy because it's never easy, but I let every single lap of of the of the twenty laps in, in each in each motor. And that you know, there that should the pin should have dropped for me and thinking, hmm, okay, so maybe training all the time, you know pushing yourself, doing all the drills, you know, maybe that's not the way for you. Maybe sometimes it's good to to relax, you know. But instead of doing that, I went straight to Lommel because the next race was in, in Lichtenwalde, which was a very, you know, deep sand track. So I went to Lommel, trained and trained, you know, didn't even enjoy the the really moment that I had, you know, it was my, my you know, now I look back and think that was the highlight of my, my life, you know, and my career working that hard to get this benefit and dream up. So it's 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 a very it's a very difficult balance, and that's why you know, 
Um, today, you know, a lot more riders, as we see in Star Yamaha, uh, Prado have his dad. You know, his dad. He, mm. His dad. He he told on the on the podcast that he his dad has only missed his practice two times since he was eleven years old. So it's incredible. So they obviously have that dynamic dynamic together, and and he doesn't need a coach, but he have his dad there to be more of a, a supportive, you know, and and because he becomes an analyzer of Horcopado, you know, the way that he rides, how he feels, so he becomes actually a coach for him, you know, and and you don't need to learn Horcopado how to ride a motorcycle, you know, he's he's obviously have that massive talent. But to be there, helping him, guiding him, be a support, someone to talk with, that can that can bring a lot, you know. And and that I believe that on on this level, um, you know, working with with top riders is not only about it's not only about just you teaching them to ride a motorcycle. Because if you are top five in the world and you win races, you can obviously ride on a motorcycle on the highest level. So you don't want to change that too much, but you can fine tune small details. And uh, and mostly be a supportive person, uh, where you can say, yeah, you can do better or whatever it could be, you know. But uh, there's definitely a very fine line there in motocross where it's very very difficult to to know when enough is enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I always say to the riders, you know, try to think about less is more, and that means that sometimes you're always aiming for speed. You want to go more aggressive. You want to go faster into the corner, but actually, it's about keeping that momentum and speed in the exit of the corner because that chooses the gear that settles the suspension and everything becomes a lot easier but to do that it takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of confidence to you know i can ride with that confidence today because first of all i have no pressure second of all i have all the experience uh, of of how not to do it and how to do it uh, so you can say that that probably become a lot better rider after I finished my career because pressure was gone and you know you, you take a rest and then you go out riding you think fuck I'm actually almost as fast or even sometimes faster than I was because I'm looking at the track in a different way and then when you become a coach you 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 are more aware of it. I, I remember the last week I was out riding on my 125 Yamaha and and I was actually thinking okay so now you know, I'm in a teaching mode. So what is it that I'm actually saying to the riders and what I'm doing myself? You know, does it, you know, does it actually add up? You know, because sometimes I think, um, um, I cannot say like who who are coaches, but but people maybe teach in a different way that have been able to and capable of riding themselves, <clears throat> which I'm completely fine with. People can do what they want, but I'm always trying to teach in the same way that, I have learned how to ride a motorcycle and, and I will never teach people some skills unless they ask me to do the same scrub as, as Tim Geiser or Bubba Stewart, you know, then I would probably, ah, uh, not today, let's, <laughs> let's do something <laughs> else. But, you know, most of the things that I'm teaching, I'm able to, uh, you know, I would say 99% I'm able to do it myself and I can take the bike and show it, you know, maybe not in the, you know, Horgupado speed or, 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 or jet jet Lawrence speed, but in my own speed and showing the the drills, when to brake, how to brake, when to lean, and all the small details that goes into it. And uh, I think that's that's important for me anyway that I teach in the same way that I was capable to write. Mm. And 
my reputation of being me, you know, they, when I say to them, you have to train hard and you have to sacrifice and you have, if I always got tired in the race and, you know, I was a guy that always sit and smoke between races and, you know, eating Burger King and, you know, was, was five stones too fat and, you know, then it maybe doesn't, doesn't give that punch that you know fuck what what you're talking about you you didn't train and you you know you got tired you know so i always try to teach as you preach or whatever you 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 say in english um yeah i think that's very important and and that gives me as a person today as well as a coach uh responsibility you know that's why I, i i train a lot i try to keep myself in line with my own um, how can you say my own perspective of how I want to see and, and look at myself to if what would happen if I if I put 10 kilos on would I would would that doesn't matter no it probably doesn't matter but it does matter to my eyes mm. because I see something that I don't like to see and because I'm always you know been been toned and, and lived by my my physical condition and being a motocross rider and now a coach is important, how I influence other people and, you know, as, as much as I can with, even with diets, with, with training, you know, I'm able to, like I said, when Bobby Bruce come down, you know, I'm able to be on a, on a, on a high level for cycling that I don't sit there and I'm, I cannot breathe. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's just, it's just a little thing that's important for me. And, uh, and I think, you know, trying to be, if you want to be a coach, for me, it's important to to show the image that I want to pass on to the young riders, and and I'm proud of being, you know, 48 years old, turning almost 49 uh, next year, um, and and being in the shape and uh, condition that I am because I, I don't take that for granted one day, you know, uh, and and most of all that I still have the motivation to actually go out and and do those things because it it doesn't come for free, you know, when you're cycling you know, 250 or 300 kilometers a week, you know, I'm lucky that I have a job that allows me to do this and plan my own day, but it's not like I'm not working. I'm just doing it in, in different time of, of the day, you know, uh, but I choose to, to get early up in the morning, six o'clock in the morning to get ready to go out and, and do my drills. Well, some people could also just get up at eight o'clock. Nobody is standing there and, mm. and telling me to get up, but, but it's something that I have inside me that I want to, I want to do this because it makes me actually more happy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that I feel good about. It's obviously the choices as well, mate. And we'll get back onto that sort of transition from a rider to a coach, I guess. But just we'll touch on Prado. Pretty interesting about mm. the Supercross. There's obviously a lot of chat that he might be lining up next year at A1 and do a couple. But it's very interesting, you know, listen to that podcast with Jace from Gypsy Tales. Really cool dude. I've done a podcast with him few months ago and yeah, he does those interviews so well so always cool to see another aussie as well mate getting the accent out there but no it's just mm. so many variables and there's always learning to go on even when you're that good isn't there mate there's so much that can be taught and still gained and just the way to manage yeah. the season so do you think he does the supercross obviously the skill set adaptation is probably a little bit easier for someone like him with that fundamental base skill set and just the talent that he has and the way approaches things he's like a very stable connected rider he doesn't often do like the crazy crashes everything's in line and i guess the technique allows him to ride 
in a safe manner as well, doesn't it? Which bodes well for mm. Frost, even though it is just an absolutely different beast and essentially a different sport. But if he does go mm. down that avenue, it'd be really interesting because one thing is riding and training and then racing it is a completely different animal. So it'll be a cool story to follow, mate. Where do you think he goes? And I guess what are the key principles that hold him in good stead to actually succeed on Supercross and maybe some things that might be a challenge? Obviously, the whoops will be sometimes the smaller guys struggle with the whoops, but just your take on all of that, mate. Yeah, you know what? It's um, it, it's always scares me a little bit. You know, I've I've seen you know great world champions going from you know being very successful in Europe and then going over to to start doing Supercross. Um, you know, my own experience with with Supercross is is very little. You know, I've always been been a rider that that loved to jump and do things. But you know, once I actually th- started making a career in, in motocross i kind of thought like i stick to this and and try to see how far i can bring that but uh, i've always been very impressed with supercross and i think of course walker pardo have you know all the talent in the world to be able to do it and you would probably you know when we had greg albertine uh, back in the days um, announcing that he's going to the u.s and do supercross you're thinking holy shit you know he is <laughs> that is not gonna go well uh, but he did, you know, he did fairly well. You know, he won an outdoor, uh, outdoor, um, uh, two fifty championship in in ninety ninety nine, I believe. And uh, you know, he was he was very good. But there's definitely certain riders that you think, you know, if let's say Jeffrey Hernings would announce that he's going to go to the Supercross, I would probably be a little bit more concerned if I was the the KTM manufacturer, even for him personally. Uh, that's just my opinion, or maybe I could be completely wrong. Uh, Tim Geiser, you know, he did the the, the Paris uh, Supercross as well, but let's just not forget that there was no whoops, and and I think a lot of it us can jump and we can speed, but a different kettle of festive when you start approaching those whoops days almost as high as the bike, mm. and um, and that was uh, that is something that I don't know. I do not know because I'm not there. Foco Pardo, dude, they showed. I mean, I saw some moves, but uh, for me, if you <laughs> if you analyze those small clips, and I'm not sure if I actually, uh, I'm completely right about this, but it didn't look like the moves was actually going in that same direction. Mm. Uh, but anyway, that's just my little idea. Uh, not taking anything away from him because I think he's a, a great rider. But uh, I think that the big, biggest problem with riding in the U.S. is, of course, the intensity of of this, you know, racing in in Supercross. And like you said, there is a different thing between practicing and going around. You know, I was at Pro Circuit some years ago when I did the World Vet in, in Glen Helen. And I was so lucky to get invited out to Pro Circuits one of the test day. And uh, I was very... Um, <laughs> I was very impressed because, you know, some of the jumps you have to turn like triple. And and one thing for me to think, looking at the track and think, I can do that. You know, I can maybe jump the jumps and, and do the whoops, you know, in, in the preseason, you know, when they're still a little bit smaller and then they build them bigger, bigger, as, as I understood. You know, I could probably learn to do that and they will not be too sketchy. But the difference is then when you start racing between triples and doubles and, you know, that speed that they need to go from, let's say, now I'm just pronouncing a number, like 50 kilometers, and then they have to break on the ramp to go 30 kilometers an hour. And then if they are five centimeters or 10 centimeters, you know, whatever centimeters too short or too long, 
that is the difference between breaking all your bones in the body yeah. and carry on because the next is a left straight after they're actually landing and turning left, you know, and that's why I'm standing there thinking, wow, you know, the timing that they need to do. One thing is that they need to do all the jumps and do them consistency, you know, and the consequences are so high, mm. but to actually be able to race those jumps and, and scrub and break up and actually feeling with and people mm. don't realize how difficult that is, you know, when you all break the calculations the and all the calculation, like, okay, now I know I need to go from 60 and to 31 kilometers an hour. And that needs to be sitting there precisely every single lap without a doubt, because if you don't do that, that have the consequences of a lot of things. <laughs> so that's the thing I could be a little bit worried about uh, with, with Prado is like, I don't know how much supercross that he have written, but I do believe no matter what skills you have, no matter what kind of technique you have, to have the racecraft that you will need to do to ride supercross is not something that you just learn. It's something that will take, for me, some years. You know, if if you have the same talent and Jorge Pardo, I still think it's going to be difficult. If If I was him, which I'm not, if I was him, I would just, you know, I would, I would go. I understand the, the the point of view that challenging yourself and living the American dream and and maybe become a, a good supercross rider, which you may could. I have, I have no idea. I think nobody really knows what what he will do until it comes, you know, racing. And you know, we hear rumors about he's gonna show up up at Anaheim one. Um, if it was me which is not, and it's only my opinion, I would probably, you know, thinking I want to defend the world championship this year. I don't care so much about Supercross. And then when I can find a hole in my calendar, and that's probably going to be after the season, I would go over and I will be specific working after my second world title, if that's the goal, to to be, you know, become a Supercross rider as early as I can. When the season is finished, go over there, start riding supercross because I'm always in a believer and I've been like that in my own career. My, my, my goal was to win a, a world championship, but I had like always small goals between being, you know, first thinking I'm going to be Danish champion. And when I'm Danish champion, I have nothing more to challenge here. Then I want to be a European champion. And when I have proved that I was good enough to be a European champion, yeah, then you go after the big goal and the big drill is to be a world champion, you know, and that's a lot higher goal, of course, and that takes a lot more year. And for some people, it never happened, but you give you your best shot. But to go and uh, having the talent like Prado and, and thinking that you do a couple of, of, of practicing in Supercross and then you have to do other drills and get ready for the world championship and then just go and do a, a AMA first round, for me, that is a, that is a very risky business. Yeah, it's a lot to take on. And I guess with a lot of the Americans, you know, they started so young on Supercross. It's like a life's body of work in a lot of ways. It's so hard just to click your fingers. Obviously, he did some many years ago when he was a youngster, but and obviously that little stint that he's done now. But whether that's enough preparation, I guess only he'll know. And if he feels confident and the people around him feel like he's ready, I guess he'll give it a crack. But it's, uh, it's a big challenge, like you see, even at the Newcastle Supercross on the weekend, you see those 85 CC kids attacking it. And, you know, there's like a mindset from so young to attack whoops mm. and to attack transitions and sections and know what to do. And just all those little nuances you mentioned, that 
you know, it takes time to learn all that. And it takes probably the best part of a decade to, you know, get those habits in place to succeed. Like with anything, so much practice needs to go into it. And I know he's a special talent. There's no doubting that, but whether it translates, there's a lot of unknowns, but it's exciting nonetheless, isn't it, mate? Yeah, definitely. And then, you know, only time can can tell, but, you know, that's why I said, you know, I can only tell what, what I've ever done if I was in his situation out from what I have seen over the years, you know, so many great riders going going over there. There was the same, you know, and, and I'm sure that some riders, you know, look back, you know, like Ben Townley, for example, if you take him as as example, 2005, you know, he finished sixth in the, in the world and then, you know, in MX1 class and there was Stefan Edwards that was actually settling for retirement very soon basically in 2006 so if if and we can always see if and if but if i was ben townley i would have stayed in europe you know trying to beat stefan evers in 2006 would probably been very difficult as his you know his worst place was second place otherwise he won every single motor almost going for a perfect season but then 2007 if you see from 2007 up to 2000 and 10 properly or a little bit less maybe the, the, it was wide open it might you know Steve Ramon won a world championship not you know winning a race uh, I think very few podiums but just consistent in top 5 top 6 and he won a world championship because you know Joshua Coppins lost his rear brake going down in, in one of the big jumps in uh, in Lockett in, in Czechoslovakia and that was it and he became world champion you know David Philippard as, as well which, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, well done and, and, and well deserved. But, you know, they were not, you know, Ben Townley for sure. Yeah, but so uh, back at those turning know, points, don't you? I think Ben is, is looking, maybe he looked back on it or, or he doesn't and said, fuck it, I, I had a good time in the US. But uh, I definitely think it's something like that that I'm looking at, you know, and uh, thinking if you... If you can be a world champion and already establish yourself, you you know you on a you on a good role, you know, and and you know let let's be honest. If if you are world champion and riding to a factory, you know, gas gas or Husqvarna, you're earning also quite good money and and some good bonuses. Uh, matter of how you make the contract, but there's a lot to uh, to be gained, and and we never know what the future is going to bring. So you know, I will bring more the consistency of something that I know. This this is my this is my area. I'm going to fucking challenge that and get the best out of that. And then, you know, once I have proven again that that and, you know, that I can win, then, yeah, okay, now I won it two times. Now it's time maybe to to do the other chance. He's still young. He's only 22 years old mm. or something like that. So he, of course, have a lot of years. That's why, you know, I would, I would look at the consistency thing. Okay, let me go one or two seasons. I want to defend that title. I want to prove to everyone with everyone with hurlings in this because there's always going to be some people talking saying that, you know, you want it because, you know, Jeffrey Hurlings got injured. Yeah, but that's the part of the game. You know, it's, uh, you know, when someone get hurt, but but if we can bring it again and Jeffrey Hurlings will come down to, you know, hopefully the a whole season next year and Prado still wins, it'd be like, yeah, okay, no more questions have to answer, you know. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, there's a lot of guys that want to attack that Supercross challenge. You look at the Coonan brothers. We just posted today the news that they've actually signed a multi-year extension with their respective Husqvarna and KTM teams. Obviously, a lot of talk was that Supercross was on the cards for them in 2025, I believe. So haven't mm. spoken to 
Lucas a few times. It's an interesting sort of a shift, isn't it? Obviously, that maybe they didn't feel like they were ready or they wanted a couple more years, mm. like you're saying, just to maybe grasp the gravity of the situation and see where they want their careers to go because they're so young still. So there's a lot of time. So is, do you think that's a wise decision? I'm assuming, yeah, to stay in the MX2 and just keep getting that development, you know, getting that race craft, getting the experience. There's just so much to gain racing in that class. And Got a great chance of winning a world championship too, don't they, mate? Especially with Yago out of the class and it's very open. So sort of sky's yeah. the limit in Europe for what they can achieve in the world championship level. Maybe that's the focus for now at least. Yeah, you know, I I, I would definitely, if I was I was one of those guys, which of course they are very talented writers, I would definitely look at, you know, who am I going to go over and challenge? And if you're going to go over and challenge, you know, uh, Hayden Deacon, well, you know, he's been riding supercross on, on extreme surfaces since he was, you know, you know, six, seven, eight, ten years old. Uh, I would not even, you know, probably take that challenge. I will, again, you know, once you have not become a world champion, and even if you become a world champion, I will again looking for myself for, for a financial st- uh, stand, uh, a point of stand as well, and thinking, you know, I can make this money here. I can, you know, if I become a world champion, I would defend that world champion because then my pay rises is, is, of course, a lot bigger. The bonuses are completely different. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I would be thinking of, even if I have a lot of passion for the sport. And like I said, my my motivation to become a professional rider and to uh, to win races was was not only affected by, by the money that I could win. It was my, like a personal battle. But, you know, I also know from the fact that, you know, when when this sport is and, and is a, a high risky sport, I would probably look more at them thinking, okay, so what can I make if I go over here compared to the risk and the competition that I have, you know, and despise what, what people are saying? What about if I have a chance to win a world championship in MX2 and I can maybe do, because I'm young, I can maybe do that two times. And then, you know, you definitely know that when you're writing for a manufacturer like that, you get a, a decent amount of bonuses. And then you can maybe take some risk if you want, but then you, you know, you're kind of secured financially mm-hmm. as well. And and it's always a lot easier to come over to bring a title. And, you know, I'm the world champion and it gives a different punch than like, I, I hope I could have been a world champion. You know, it's like, it doesn't really... You know, and especially coming over to America, I believe I never, I never raced in America in in AMA, but I can believe it's as hard as from, you know, for me coming from Denmark, being nobody, and then coming into, you know, it's it takes a, a lot of time to um, to to get settled and and knowing competitors and get confidence with the with the people because a lot of people wanna, you know rather bring you down than, than bring you up because mm. nobody likes to see someone coming over and dominate the the AMA Supercross or AMA Outdoor, you know, being from another country. We've seen that with the French people many times. And and it's really tough, you know, I can imagine is it's it's a it's a really mental drag all the time because you don't have the the people around you. And it's the same with Caroli. I mean Caroli was as good as he was because he got in with with the Carly so early, it was like a family for him. Mm-hmm. Would the Caroli been as good if he went to the US? No, absolutely not. I don't believe that because Caroli is who he is, you know, and and he likes family around him. He likes you know be around the Carly. Uh, that was his little circle of people, and that was the people that believed in him and took him to the level when 
he had downs in his career because let's face it, like when you're winning and you're doing everything is great, you know, like you can you can almost fly. But when you don't do that and you have injuries, that's where you need people around you to support you and and bring you up again, you know. And and I think that's a very important part of being successful is actually being smart and choosing, you know, thinking this is this this is my base. This is this is what I want to do, and this is where I can be successful. And then people can tell, yeah, but let's come over here, like with Hurlings and and Eli Tomac. I'm gonna come over in the you know when you heard the the Gypsy Tale. Uh, I believe it was when when he was saying, "Yeah, I would like to to do a race and where we we drill everything down and you know we we do it one more time because Eli already won the title when I was over there, so people didn't you know maybe get the the full respect for that you know." But I'm thinking like, why? Why <laughs> is this important? You know, like <laughs> you know, everyone knows that Jeffrey Hurlings, you know, is without a doubt one of the fastest guys in in the world riding a motorcycle, and you don't have anything else to prove, you know, and um, you have already done enough. You know, you're the fastest and the most incredible sand rider in the world, and determination that what you ride with, you're already proven enough. Do you need to to settle for 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 one race to be who is Nah, I don't think it's necessary, mate. I think you've already done enough. This is my opinion, eh? but uh, we'll be all, of course, different, and that's that's okay. I suppose if there's money on the table, that definitely talks. But yeah, those one-off races, it's just not good if something happens. You know, if you get injured doing that, you think, well, what a waste. You know, especially when you look back at Fever at Paris Supercross a couple of years ago when he broke his leg and missed the season. Like, it's just that's not your goal to race Paris Supercross, even though the money's there. It's obviously tough to tell him that and you know a lot of planning goes into these things but he must have had a lot of regret about that injury for sure mate and i guess you look at that and you talk on that and then we'll go on to the transition from a rider a professional like yourself to a coach mm. how that is obviously you miss that adrenaline rush and that sort of competitive edge and those environments and situations which you really you don't get anywhere else but racing or playing at a high level whatever your chosen field is so that's obviously something mm. that's a tough management process a tough thing to adapt to but Sounds like you've done it extremely well. Obviously, the success is down to certain things like communication and conveying your message because that's, you know, you hear a lot of what we're saying, professional soccer players, athletes in many sports. It doesn't really, sometimes it just doesn't work. The coaching, you know, they're at such a high level and they expect, they demand perfection from their fellow professionals, you know, but they're just not at that level. They're not at their expectation of what they should be. And it's frustrating. And they're like, why can't they do it? It's just not acceptable that they can't do it, even though they're elite at what they do. So trying to find that balance and, you know, work with people and deal with so many different types of personalities, it's not an easy thing to deal with. And obviously, you know, having pressure on top of that that you want to put on yourself and the players or the people that you work with, they obviously expect, you know, improvement from you. So there's so many factors Mm. to deal with. So I guess that competitive nature worked really well for you, trying to maybe impose your sort of skill set and what you've learned and taught over the years. That must be a pretty cool challenge, mate. And I guess, obviously, you love what you do. So just tell us about the dynamic of it all and how it was for you personally from finishing your career to now. Well, you know, it, it's 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 a really, really tough um, transaction because, you know, you're building up identity. You you know, you become successful uh, and you, you're coming to have like a certain amount of, of um, how can you say, fans around you all the time you know people want to ask for an autograph and you're like fuck yeah I'm, I'm 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 good at this you know and 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 it's always about for me also to you know to keep my feet on the ground at the same time even if i was winning or i was losing or whatever so so that thing i have quite 
uh, established in, in myself through my family and, and the way that I was brought up. But then talking about the transaction of actually knowing that now it's actually towards the end because let's let's face it, when you're actually in it, and even if you know that you're getting older every year, you you are you don't really wanna you don't actually really wanna recognize that, that that this you know you kind of think that you know you're gonna carry on and and, and this is never gonna stop you know this is what you're kind of mentally thinking but you know deeply inside that it's gonna have a stop one day it's just about when is it actually time to stop and I think that's difficult to define for many writers because it's uh, it's a lot of the times not in a in a place where you got you have to choose it yourself. You know, it's something that comes up either with an injury or, or maybe there's, there's no rights left where you feel that you can progress anymore with a, with a team. Um, and that, that can be all different for me, Drider. For me, it was, uh, it was many small injuries um, and I had some knee injuries that then causes that I start getting uh, some problem in my back and, and I had a, a quite a big concussion uh, in 2005, which um, I actually run through my whole career uh, for so many years without having any concussions. And in 2005 in Agueda in Portugal, I crashed in a morning practice and uh, did a huge compression on my right side of my head and kind of lost the uh, lost, um yeah, completely focused. You know, Stefan Everts' dad, Harry Everts, was standing on the side, and he saw the crash. And he later told me that, uh, yeah, it was really weird because I I got the compression, I got knocked out for you know a couple of seconds, and then I kind of picked up the bike, and I was riding for factory Yamaha that time uh, as, as Stefan Everts was my teammate, and um, I I went straight off the the track, you know, into the pit lane. And my own mechanic, which is now, I believe, one of the chef engineer at Factory HRC, uh, he was my own mechanic uh, at at Honda at that time in 2004, or 2000, uh, yeah, 2004. And this was the 2005 season. I went over to him, my own mechanic from Honda, and I said, "Marcus, I'm gonna drive up in the in the van." And he looked at me. He's like, "Why do you say that to me?" So I said, "Well, because you're my mechanic." And it was like, no, mate, I'm I'm not your mechanic anymore. You're riding for Yamaha. <laughs> I was like, all right, no problem. And I, <laughs> and I drove, I, I drove straight up and I put my bike inside the Honda, the the Honda tender. So uh, there was obviously something that was not right. So then I walk out of the tent, and the 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 Honda guys was walking towards me, and I was like, what are you doing? And and I just walked straight on, went down in my camper didn't realize all this is happening because I was still, you know, I was awake, but I was, I was out and um, went down in the camper. Uh, Michele Rinaldi and Carlo Rinaldi was, was the team manager of factory Yamaha at that time. They came down and apparently took me out and did a lap on the track. And I do not remember anything, which actually is pretty scary in, in mm. some ways. But uh, anyway, I had this, uh, this massive concussion. I lost seven hours of my memory after that, I definitely start getting some small problems with concentration because I never had a concussion in my life before. And, you know, when you break something or you have something that you needs rest, it's, it's very easy to say, okay, three weeks rest and you'll be back. You feel okay, your joints are okay. But here in the head, it was a very confusing thing for me because I was like, I was standing between 
don't be so fucking weak, you know, of course, there's nothing wrong. But then I went on the bike very, very early after the crash. And, um, you know, it's difficult to make tests on your head exactly what what it can do and what it cannot do. So you have to kind of go and then you're playing with your with your with your strong mindset, thinking, you know, you don't quit, you don't quit. It doesn't matter if you can fucking look out of your eyes. You know, you're you're not dead and then you just get on with it, you know. But then when I start riding, I start losing, you know, the feeling I I forgot to break and suddenly I forgot the gear and it was it was like all confusing. So but anyway, there there was there was a lot of things that, that happened uh that that year and uh, I had another a small concussion that year uh, before Namur. And then, like I told you that story about Namur, then I had a week off and then I went out and won that first race yeah. by, by you know, 18 seconds. And it was like, how how is that even possible? <laughs> but in the second second moto, my eyes was like completely, you know, because then it was difficult for me to concentrate. So that's why I started making mistakes again and, and lost the Grand Prix, you know, because of that thing, you know. So there was a lot of things that my my body was was dealing with too much stress. So for me to to say that it was now, it it took a lot of you know long cycling for myself. And and I remember the first person that I actually you know wanted to hear the reaction from was my mom. So you know there was a lot of like you know leading up to this, thinking is it over? Because it it's something that you don't really want to realize. But for me, it was also important for myself to be completely honest that, you know, if I could not advance and being a championship contender, you know, pushing myself to, to higher limits, to better limits, then I just didn't have any interest. I feel that I was too honest of a person to tell someone, yeah, you can pay me a lot of money because at that time, Aprilia actually offered me a lot of money because they came in with this new bike. And, you know, I just said, no, it, because I knew the bike was, we're not going to be good enough. And I knew that I was not going to be good enough. So what is the point of getting a lot of money if, you know, if I cannot back it up? And I wanted to be, you know, honest for my fans that the fans that came and watched me, they would always see a guy that do 100%, you know, racing hard as I can, showing that I am here to, you know, to battle with the best in the world. And if I could not do that anymore, you know, honestly, the interest was just just not there anymore, and uh, and I start getting pain in my back. I had some problem with the coccyx uh, because I broke them many 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 years ago, and as soon as I hit like my seat towards my bum, the coccyx will bend, and then I will get so much pain. And I remember this, you know, they, it was such a difficult time because I could be one hundred percent fine, and then. You know, in time practice, the seat could hit me like really hard in, in, in the back and then it could just block my whole back, you know, and then I will not be able to move. And I was like, then people coming over. Yeah, but you were okay two laps ago. Yeah, but fucking, you know, I didn't want to be feeling that I'm telling excuses not to race because there was something that I really loved was to race and I fucking work hard to, to be in that position to race with the best in the world. And if I couldn't do that anymore, then that was it. So anyway... Uh, I announced it in uh, Europe um, in 2006 uh, that uh, I could not, I I, I had to stop uh, and I didn't want to race anymore. And it was, it was really tough. And uh, when I made that announcement was a couple of weeks before when I actually called my mom and, and funny enough, you know, because of 
the situation I was in <clears throat> in my uh, in my youth with my own dad passing away. My mom was like a a really how can I say when she said something and she agreed on something, then it was correct. You know, it was not like I was doubting her opinions. Uh, and I always asked her for small opinions. And when I got those opinions, it was it was rule. You know, it was like a rule. This is what I do. You know. So I waited a long time. I didn't say to anyone uh, around me that I was thinking about stopping. And then I called my mom one one evening when I've been out cycling a long time. And I thought this this is it. But I had to I had to collect my courage to actually speak with her, you know, and say this. And uh, I said to her, "Mom, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stop my my racing. I feel that I cannot be better than what I always already have been." And I think, and she said to me, "I think that's a good choice. Pack your stuff and come home." <laughs> you know, and uh, and that was that was it for me. That was that was the, the the main decision. But but then actually, you know, doing it and 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 stopping and going to you know motocross of nation in two thousand six at Madley Basing, you know, knowing that this is the last time that you're gonna see your family, if you can say it like that, you know, because the people at, at racing and fans and, and riders and, you know, team bosses, and they become your family as well, because you're spending so much time with them. And it's, uh, it, it's really difficult to, to leave that, you know, leave that all, it, it's all your identity that suddenly just stops. And then you like, you know, next morning you're looking at the self yourself and then you're thinking, who am I now? You know, without the motocross gear, without the, the the fame and the capacity and capabilities that I have of riding a motorcycle, which most people, you know, would give their right hand for. So what am I actually now? And and that was something that uh, it took me a while because I didn't have a I didn't have a second I didn't have a plan written up because I always thought if I already have the plan of what I want to do when I when I fail or when I stop it's going to be quite bad towards the end anyway. And that's where, for me, things could happen. So when I say that I'm going to stop, it's, it, there was only one race left, and, and that was it for me. You know? Process is acceptance, the, isn't it? Yeah, and, and that was the acceptance of actually thinking there's, there's no return of what you just said. You know, you're not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do it again, and I'm going to come back because now I'm completely going to redeem myself. It, it was a very uh, tough decision, but I knew that decision after a little while uh, was the right thing for me and uh, and move on in life because at the moment when you are in the sport and you are achieving and you are you want it to be better, you you do actually believe that there's nothing else in life that that there is to live for. And and you know, sometimes I even think, you know, well, is there any other life than 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 motocross <laughs> after this, you know? But uh, I slowly find out and slowly, you know, I, I kind of took a year off uh, off um, everything and, and uh, I moved back to Denmark and, and did uh, the Danish championship because I kind of wanted to finish that off. You know, I, I started, you know, winning a, a, Europe, a Danish championship in, in 86 or something like that. And this was 2007. So I wanted to finish and actually finish my career on the same brand that I started on when I won my first day in championship in 85 on a Kawasaki. So I signed a contract with Kawasaki Denmark and finished the, my, my last year of riding, winning the MX1 
uh, title there. And then that was that was it for me. And then I was lucky that the transaction was an interesting part for me because I wanted to become a, a, a coach and a trainer. Uh, and why I wanted to do that was because I feel I learned so much and I took, you know, so much um, courage to 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 learn myself how to become who I become, and that's why you know from from when we talk about you know winning in Tricentile, you know, people are like, uh, but you only won that one race. But for me, that one race was just was really just the bonus of actually all those hard work, uh, all those many years of hard work. You know, not having anyone to actually guide me or lead me in the direction that I want. And actually, that day, I was the fucking, I was the best rider, you know, in the world championship. I, I beat the, you know, the eight times world champion. So how I find those tools, you know, like I said, the 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 goal and the the trophy was not the most important thing. It's actually the road mm. to standing with that trophy, which became very interesting for me and became something that fuck, this is what I want to do. I want to give other people that that opportunity and to learn from me because I'm sure that if I learn things a lot faster, you know, when, if I had a coach, you know, like I said before, when I had all the tools in the box, you know, in my rucksack, I had all the tools to become a world champion. It was almost like it was too late, you know, and uh, because I, I had to learn by my mistakes all the time, my, my body and my mind took definitely a certain, you know, punch of, of all this. And it was difficult for me mentally to keep, keep going and keep, you know, pulling myself up. Oh, you're going to do it again now. Oh, another injury. Oh, you can do it again. You know, it, it, it takes so much energy from your body. And uh, and that's why I think I wanted to be a coach and, and learning people, you know, transferring, you know, all the skills that I have learned because I said always there's, there's difference between, you know, reading the book or writing the book and and i felt i write the book in many ways of the way that i teach because it's something that i had to think about it's something that i had to be creative about do this uh off the rear break or see something of you know stephen Everts or whoever it was that had some some different skills than me and then actually taking those skills and bring it into my own writing style but still keeping myself as brian jorgensen you know and keeping the best of of the skills that I was, I developed myself, you know. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, uh, analyzing things is a key part of it as well. It's like they say in other sports with, you know, tactical analysis and whatever. It's like, are you watching the game? But are you watching the game? You know, there's so many different things mm. going on that some people notice to the casual fan that's not even there, but to the experienced analytical eye, there's just so much you can see all the time. So I guess it must be pretty cool for you to share your knowledge and then apply it to helping others, which is another way you can sort of, you know, spread the word and also use your skills in such a positive way, isn't it, mate? Yeah, and, you know, for me, that, that, that was a good way to kind of transact and, and and kind of like go over to be a coach and, and try to be the, the best coach, the best version of myself without comparing myself with other coaches, you know, because I believe, you know, when, when people come and say, ah, oh, but you are, you are better than this and you are better than that. And I'm always saying, you know, I, I don't think I'm better than anyone, you know. I, I'm I'm always trying to beat myself and I'm trying to come across in the best way for you to learn from me. And, you know, in the beginning when you stop your professional career, you I, you know, I remember myself thinking, I just want to work with the best in the world. 
you know, there's no one else that I want to work with. You know, that's why I became the, the national coach of Denmark, working with TKO and, and Rasmus Jorgensen and those people that are still in, you know, TKO has been second and, and third in the world championship of 250. And Rasmus Jorgensen is running the Nestang Husqvarna uh, factory 250 team. So, you know, hopefully <clears throat> I have brought something to the table for, for some of the people and, and more also give them hope that, you know, if I can do it with, with my story and with, with the mindset that I have, I believe that it's everyone can do it. You no, know? it's it's not about only having the skills. It's about the consistency and the belief that you have in yourself to keep wanted so much that you will get up the next morning and you try to perfectionize of what you already did the day before, and then you perfectionize that day to the next day, and you know always want the best out of yourself. And I always said, pressure for me. There is nobody can put as much pressure on my shoulder than I can put on myself because I'm the guy that it's, you know, achieving the goals. I'm the guy that doing the drills. So if anyone wants it that, then it's me because I am sacrificing, you know, I am using my body towards this. I also have to pay the consequences of making mistakes and, and doing you know, stupid things or, or not having the patience to actually wait for the results. And uh, and that way I learned a lot, you know, and, and something that, you know, when people are going fast today and they want to be fast and, you know, when we're talking about parents and riders, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, coming to my school is not a miracle. You know, a miracle is when you can actually keep the consistency of coming back or, or wanted to, to work hard yourself as well, because it's not only in my training school that we do those drills and we do on boot camp, we do recuperation and, you know, the cycling and, and everything else. What we do is not something that we only do in my camps. It's something that you should hopefully put into your routine. So you want to do it at home because that's where you become good. I'm only here to provide the tools for you and the consistency and, and the, the drills to, to make you better, but you're not going to be a lot better today or tomorrow, but you're going to be a lot better in six months or 12 months. Uh, and that's how you have to work with it. But I'm giving you the tools to say what you have to work with. And then it's totally up to you to, to keep, you know, keep doing those things because we all know that it's the consistency of what you do that makes a difference. It's not a, I'm not like a, you know, you come to training school in red sand and, and, and then you're going to be like 10 seconds faster. Uh, but but I'm definitely going to give as much tool, as much inspiration and positivity that I have learned over the years to to bring with you home. And, you know, I do speeches uh, as well, you know, also for to bringing in the parents, you know, how to deal with with combined of, of goals, you know, because like I said, you know, if you don't have the same common goals, if you if the dad thinks you're gonna be world champion and you only have the, the actually the goal of becoming a, a club champion or a national champion, then then we are maybe on two different pages, you know. And that's why it's so important to actually communicate as as parents and and kids and and actually finding out what is the goal and how do we reach this goal? Is that even realistic with the time and the money and everything? But we have to to do this. Or, you know, and and that's a that's a part, a big part of success, and and that I feel is my job to give this, this speeches and 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 knowledge that I have over the years, and also the way that 
my family, how they approach racing and why I still love riding and racing and training today is because that I was never pressured into to become who I become. You know, I got the tools, you know, not not incredible tools, not not with a lot of money, but I got enough tools to be able to do the job in the best way that I could at that time, you know, and then it was totally up to me. And you can imagine with with the upbringing that I have with, with losing my dad when I was 16, if I didn't have that self-drive, I mean, I would just have stopped because, you know, let's put it to the fact that there was no a lot of money. So so if I didn't take the ball from here, I said, okay, I want to hand that over to to for me to become a professional or, or live out those goals, if the ball was just to stay on the ground and I would just have stopped when I was 16 and, and then I could live in the, you know, if and I could have blamed my dad from, you know, having cancer and, and everyone else around me. But I took that ball because I wanted to to show to myself it's not about, you know, how much money you have. It's about the will and determination you have to 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 drive your own life and go after your own goals because nobody can can do that for you. And I think that's an important message to give out to the to the parents today. It's like, you know, you can you you can only lead the horse to the water. Mm. And and but you cannot make a drink, you know, and uh, and that's that's I feel it's important for me to to give that out, and then people can take it or, or leave it, you know. But this is the truth. Yeah, it's absolutely, mate. It's almost like a skill in itself. Speaking to all the riders and trainers to be that committed, to be that dedicated, to want it so badly, because there's so much that goes into obviously being a professional in any chosen field, and it's got to be a complete package or working, you know, you know, right direction for success, isn't it, mate? You can't sort of dip in and out when you want to pick and choose. It's got to be like everything's got to be done, like you said, with consistency and longevity, because it needs to be worked at. You know, the body of work needs to be massive to get to where you want to be. And I guess with kids, you probably have that battle with the parents does the kid want it or does the dad want it and it all comes down to like the stuff we said before do they love it and do they want to make this a career and also do they want to have fun and enjoy it which is an important part of doing it because that's why everyone gets into bikes in the first place but there is level mm. to you know success and levels to what you want to achieve and you know pressure you want to put on yourself and the drive is the key thing isn't it mate if the drive's not there to be a world champion you just got to readjust the goals which is probably sometimes easier for the parents than the child to manage isn't it yeah, I mean it's it's totally true, you know. Like uh, when when you at the the people come on your camps and uh, you know you you can only provide the the, the same tools. That the tools are not different from the guy that really wants it or the guy that just here because he wants to be a little bit better. Or maybe even the dad told him to be here, you know. But honestly, you know, I do see that, and uh, I don't judge any people, you know. I, I you know not everyone have to be like me and and have the same drive and you know probably some people think that i'm crazy and and that's okay you know because i i still have that drive to improve myself and i i want to be a better coach and i want to be you know in good shape and uh, and i want to do a lot of things and and that's my drive and and you know maybe some people think that that's crazy that you still want to push yourself but fuck that's me you know and and i you know don't judge me and i don't judge anyone else for being less you know uh competitive or or have less goals or whatever if people want to you know come down on my school and they just want to be a club team they're more than welcome and they're going to get the same tools it's you know it's it's basically here's the tools you can take it they, they are here on the shelf you can take it down if you want and i know that tool is going to make you a better rider but it doesn't come for free because if you want to be a better rider and you want that those tools on that shelf 
you need to start drilling down and, and working hard, not only when you want it, unfortunately, but also when you don't feel like you want it, because that's where you start taking out the emotions from, from, from what you're doing. Uh, and, and that's was something like it, I told you earlier that that's something Carmichael, Carmichael also taught me. He said, I, I learned to be completely emotionless, you know, for what I want to do and what I don't want to do because I just need that. I need to do the drills. And if I didn't do it, my mom would surely show me that I need to do it, you know? So, so, so that was a, a different uh, way of, of doing things there, but, but it's okay to be pushing your kids to be better. If he asks that he wants to be pushed, you know, like Kaolin Wojniacki was one of the, the best tennis player that we had in Denmark became, you know, maybe many times Wimbledon uh, winner. You know, when when I was at the National Federation, you know, in Team Denmark, which is a big organization for sports people in the world, you know, with with a big community of of all the best trainers and and sports people, you know, they always talked to me a little bit about said, yeah, but Karolina Bosniakis dad, he was Polish, you know, they were Polish but moved to Denmark and and he was pushing her and. And he's a mean person. And I said, you know, there's nothing wrong with pushing her. And especially not if it comes from her mouth saying, I want you to push me to the limit because then I know I perform on the highest level. So where's the limit there? You know, I, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't matter. She became one of the most successful tennis player in the world. And they, you know, made a lot of money, so she doesn't have to to do anything else. So I kind of think that it that says enough, you know. And and that's okay when you agree on it. But what is not okay when you don't agree on it, you know? Mm. I don't want to be pushed, and then you don't, you know, you let them do. And and like I said, for myself, I just I just love riding, and I love to perform, and I love to race because my family gave me that freedom. To here is the bike. We drove you out to the race. If you want to win, it's up to you. If you don't want to win, you, the bike is still going to be there standing with 10, 20 liters of fuel, you know, which I think is it's completely amazing when I think about it and what I see today, mm. you know, giving me that freedom just to ride and have fun and smile, you know, and if it was a good day, they would clap me on the shoulder and thinking, you know, I'm awesome. But if it was a bad day, they would still clap me on the shoulder and thinking that I'm awesome. Because it's, it's, it's not their achievement. They're just here mm -hmm. to support me. And believe me, when as a racer and being young and, and being older, you know when you have done a good race and when you have done a bad race. There's no doubt in the mound because it stands here. <laughs> you know, Either you come home with a trophy thinking that was an awesome day with one, two, and three, whatever your goal is, or you have a fuck all, and then you're not so happy maybe, you know? So that was, that was, uh, that's, that's my opinion, mate. But uh, yeah, that, that's just being me. Yeah, mate, it's pretty cool. You just sort of given the framework and the principles and the fundamentals and it's up to them in the long run, ultimately, what you want to do with it and how you want to run with it. So that's pretty awesome, mate. Yeah. We've just uh, ticked over about 100 minutes now. So just to finalise the podcast here, mate, any final thoughts and yeah. what's the upcoming plans for the off-season? I'm sure we'll be chatting in a couple of weeks anyway, but you probably just look forward to being back at home after spending some time in France there with the blue crew, the Yamaha thing. So yeah, it's been an awesome chat again, mate. There's so much gold in here as well. We could probably keep chatting for another eight hours and there'd still be stuff to talk about, mate. But uh, yeah, just yeah. anything you want to say or shout out to your riding schools that you've got coming up. So give you a chance to do that now. Yeah, you know, uh, like like it's going to be busy from now on. On Sunday, the starts, uh, I have like a fitness uh, cycling camp and 
there will be one week of uh, of working uh, on the bicycle, of course, and doing gym work because I I created those camps and they're going to come more and more for the future. I created those camps because I realized the benefits of you know being prepared, you know, physically, and that means also naturally start being mentally. And then my MX boot camp starts in in Red Sand in the tenth of uh, November, tenth of December, and and then it carries on. But if someone wants to you know uh, look at some information, they can go in on mx8.dk, and you can see the different camps there uh, over New Year uh, from the 20, 29th to the sixth of uh, January. It's it's very busy, and then I have another boot camp in. Uh, in the middle of January, and again one in the, we can say the winter holiday here in Europe, in a week seven. So, uh, so if people want are interested in that, they can always uh, look at my mx8.dk or even contact me on Brian Johnson MX School on Instagram or Facebook. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, I'll be more than than happy to to help people and give me give them, you know. The, the years of experience and and it doesn't matter if you want to be a world champion or you just want to be a little bit more safe on the bike or even just come down in the sun and just just ride you know like i said it's it's totally up to people and uh, you know the end of the day is is to have fun with with what we do and then hopefully you know some people maybe think it's like me but it, it's fun to win you know and it's fun to win races and and you know the the drills behind that takes takes of course a, a lot of hard work but uh, that's it mate but uh, otherwise it's going to be a busy winter and uh, hopefully uh, another good year next year with the uh, with the blue crew and the uh, and the riders that i'm working with for the european championship and, and world championship i have a uh, also a, a girl that i'm working with called lucy barker which is uh, going to do her first year in the world championship she became european champion in the 125 this year and I'm very excited to uh, to work with her and her brother uh, for for next season. So uh, I have quite a few. I don't know why, but uh, I have quite a few people that I work with for the for the UK uh, because I am Danish. Uh, but I think it's because I I lived over there for quite a few years. I became a British champion in 2001, so I have a good uh, fan base over there, and uh, I, I work with some some good writers over there that that hopefully that I have gave some good tips and, and uh, routines and uh, hopefully can achieve their goals. So uh, anyway, thanks a lot for, for having me on the, on the podcast again. And I hope that people uh, again can benefit for some of the things that we are, we are talking about. So thanks a lot for that. Absolutely, mate. Well said. Thanks for taking the time to join us. And it's definitely, you know, thanks to the listeners for, you know, listening to these and enjoying them and providing the feedback because that's a lot of the time that sort of predicates what we talk about or which guests we get on. So it's been awesome, the feedback. And before we let you go, mate, we'll just thank the sponsors in Fly Racing, Monster Energy, Fox, Parts Europe, Scott, Bell Helmets, Achervies, ASV Performance, Kawasaki UK, KTM UK, O'Neill, and of course, even Strokes for all their incredible support. As without them, there is no us. So all the best with everything upcoming, mate. We look forward to speaking again soon. Yeah. And then, like I said, if, if someone wants to comment and there's something specific, you know, let's take the next podcast up to the listeners and yeah. maybe let them uh, guide us of what they want to hear. You know, it could be uh, funny stories from the past or whatever, you know, there's no limits, but uh, let's see what they, what they say. And then when we get some response on this then we can uh, we can prepare another uh, another podcast over the, the the winter here no worries mate all the best and we'll speak soon okay thanks a lot eh?